Hello and welcome back to the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series. As always, supported by the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports and kindly sponsored by Vicon. Again, as always, all views are those of the individual speakers, but today we've got a speaker and some views that I'm really looking forward to hearing. And I know some other people are as well. I think when I first set up this series, one of the main goals was to try and help as many biomechanists as possible, ranging from students through to researchers. And hopefully with the topic today, it's something that will benefit quite a broad range of people. Um, yeah, so without further ado, I'm joined by Professor Bill Baltzopoulos, who is head of the Research Institute for Sport and Exercise Sciences at Liverpool John Moores University. His main research interests and work are focused on the biomechanics of the musculoskeletal system. And today he's going to give a talk on a really common area within biomechanics where there are a lot of kind of potential misconceptions. So it could be really good to try and clarify those and maybe add in a little common sense to the situation. So he's going to give a talk on inverse dynamics, joint reaction forces, and loading in the musculoskeletal system with various mechanical misconceptions. So thank you very much. And over to you, Bill. Thank you very much, Good, uh, And hello, everyone. Uh, I hope you're all well. Uh, thank you for tuning in, uh, either live or watching this recording later. Um, thank you very much uh, for the introduction uh, and your kind words, uh, Stuart. And uh, I can assure all people watching that uh, I am the same person as the uh, Sport Biomechanics Lecture Series flyer that Stuart uh, circulated. Uh, the, the, the picture was from a long time ago. But thank you for all your hard work uh, and efforts, Stuart. It's uh, really appreciated. It's an excellent uh, initiative, especially in these uh, strange and difficult times. And uh, thank you also to uh, ISBS and Vicon for supporting and contributing to this work. As Stuart uh, briefly explained in this lecture, I just want to address some important issues in my view uh, linked to uh, inverse dynamics, musculoskeletal loading and related terminology. Now, I, I appreciate that uh, this is perhaps a dry technical subject and uh, perhaps um, not... not um, as interesting or exciting as the other more applied uh, sessions. Uh, but nevertheless, I believe that it is very important as it underpins most of the other work that we do and uh, we must all understand and communicate uh, with the same uh, mechanical uh, language. So um, the, the session uh, hopefully um, uh, will uh, satisfy everyone. It's uh, uh, a little bit difficult to plan when you don't really know the experience of the audience. Uh, so I try to um, uh, balance the talk uh, and uh, I'm going to start with some uh, basic principles when needed so that we all understand uh, the same things. Um, I also included um, a basic uh, modeling example uh, just to, um, to make some points. Uh, so um, uh, I hope you uh, uh, excuse me for uh, sort of uh, following um, uh, a rather simplistic approach uh, to make some uh, some points. But I'm just going to start with some uh, general aspects about uh, the assessment of loading. Um, 
just uh, concentrate on, uh, as I said, some uh, basic steps. I'm also going to go back to some uh, seminal papers in, in this uh, respect, because I think uh, this is very important. Uh, and then I'm going to concentrate on uh, just the main steps of inverse dynamics. And in my view, uh, why some mechanical misconceptions have crept in uh, over the years uh, and uh, are not very helpful uh, in my experience. And I'm just going to end up with uh, some conclusions and recommendations uh, for the way forward uh, in, in my view. So in, in biomechanics, um, uh, just a big picture, uh, the work that uh, all of us are doing are basically either to improve performance uh, or training or to uh, prevent uh, injuries. So I'm sure we all want to uh, uh, help athletes achieve um, uh, great um, uh, <coughs> results, but also in, in the process, trying to avoid uh, um, uh, injuries. Now, whether we want to improve performance or prevent injury, uh, we are interested in forces in, in biomechanics. That's why we uh, obsess with uh, understanding the effects of the forces. Uh, and we spend a lot of time uh, trying to use forces either to improve performance or understand their effects on biological tissues. But the problem, of course, is that forces are not visible. Uh, we can only uh, see their uh, effects uh, because we can't directly uh, measure them. Uh, so, obviously, uh, there's a broken tibia there uh, with a clean uh, fracture. Uh, so, that's clearly the effect of some uh, overload, uh, a force that was applied. So, the only thing that, that um, we can do is to um, measure the effects uh, of the forces on the musculoskeletal system. And these effects are usually a deformation in the tissue or some uh, tissue strain. Now, it is actually possible to measure in vivo the effects of forces, that is to say, uh, what deformation or strain they cause uh, in tissues in vivo. However, this requires uh, special sort of tensiometry that's been developed, or obviously instrumented prosthesis uh, or some strain uh, or optical transducers that can be implanted in the tissues. And you have uh, uh, some uh, uh, really nice pictures there of the work uh, that was pioneered by uh, Tayafini and uh, Pavakomi um, uh, um, assessing the uh, strain of the patella, but also the uh, Achilles tendon uh, using optical uh, fibers. So the optical fiber uh, uh, goes through the tendon, and obviously as the tendon develops force uh, and the strain is changed, uh, the quantity of light that goes through the fiber uh, is calibrated to um, determine uh, the force or to uh, reflect the force that goes through the tendon. There's uh, a, a lot of other uh, methods that have been developed over the years for the assessment of loading in the musculoskeletal system by uh, somehow assessing 
the in vivo tissue strain. So I'm just going to go through some of um, some of these um, techniques. I don't want to spend a lot of time. Uh, it's just an indication of how uh, using some of these invasive techniques, uh, we can actually uh, have some estimation or direct measurement uh, of the strain uh, in tissues. Uh, if we look at tendons, again, there have been uh, techniques that use um, ultrasound, for example. Uh, this is uh, the paper, uh, seminal paper, in my view, that uh, Kostis Maganaris did uh, uh, with uh, Professor Paul. Uh, and uh, they, in, in this particular one, they measured the mechanical properties uh, of the uh, tibialis anterior uh, tendon. And that just by tracking the myotendinous junction, uh, of, uh, of tendon, uh, they were able to, in essence, measure the, the strain in the tendon uh, and with some uh, measurement uh, based on the um, measurement of moment arm, they were able to uh, relate that displacement of the tendon or the tendon strain, if you like, uh, to the stress of the tendon. More recently, obviously, um, Daryl Fellen and uh, his group um, presented some uh, amazing new techniques uh, that rely on uh, shear wave uh, tensiometry. Uh, so just by uh, tapping the tendon and measuring the speed with which the waves sort of travel through the tendon, uh, either initially through ultrasound uh, or with uh, some accelerometers, they're able, as you can see, to relate uh, the speed uh, with which the waves are traveling through the tendon uh, with the uh, torque, uh, because obviously the speed will be proportional to the strain uh, in the tendon. Some really, really exciting uh, ideas uh, that uh, basically allows you to, um, with this external device, um, measure the uh, wave speed. And as you can see here, the Achilles wave speed squared uh, is uh, following very nicely the ankle torque uh, developed uh, during, uh, during gait. So again, very exciting and promising uh, recent techniques. If we go back uh, a little bit further, uh, we, we, um, uh, uh, we can see that uh, you can actually uh, look at ACL strain uh, we're doing a lot of work and a lot, a lot of people uh, are interested in uh, preventing uh, ACL injuries. And it, it actually, it is possible, obviously, under very uh, restricted conditions uh, to implant uh, a transducer. Uh, and uh, the work of Bruce Bainan uh, uh, in um, uh, the 90s, uh, they started with um, a whole effect transducer, but uh, uh, this is an improved method. And you can see here that obviously in these conditions, um, you can see the ACL strain in different uh, flexion extension um, um, examples uh, in the knee. These days, uh, a similar idea for the ACL strain, but uh, based on uh, biplane um, X-rays. So, um, this work is using um, uh, high-resolution CT 3D image, and obviously, if you identify uh, the um, uh, proximal and distal ends of the Achilles, uh, sorry, the um, anterior cruciate ligament, uh, 
these uh, these points can be tracked in real time during the movement uh, from the X-rays, and obviously you can measure the three D distance uh, between the attachment sites of uh, of the ligament, and therefore calculate uh, the lengthening uh, of the ligament uh, in this case during walking and running. Again, um, under uh, X-rays, uh, there are restrictions. Uh, but uh, very promising uh, techniques to be able to look um, the different uh, strains in this case, uh, not only of the whole ligament, but uh, the different bundles of the ligament as well. Um, a different group, uh, uh, this is Louis de Freit's group, obviously, uh, uh, based on MRIs this time. So the 3D uh, model is based on MRI, but again, uh, if you know the location of the attachment, uh, in the femur and the tibia, um, then those uh, can be tracked in, in real time uh, uh, with the X-ray system uh, during the movement. And again, you can see uh, approximately 7% uh, 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 maximum strain uh, in vivo uh, in the ACL. Again, very, very promising uh, techniques. And uh, last but not least, um, uh, I don't know whether you were uh, in um, uh, the, the CAMS uh, knee workshop that Bill Taylor uh, organized in, uh, in, in February. But again, some uh, pioneering and excellent work uh, using the data uh, at the um, uh, Tarite Hospital and uh, the Julius Wolf Institute uh, together with uh, um, Georg Bergman, uh, uh, the pioneering work of uh, Georg and Georg Dudenau. Uh, and obviously Bill um, uh, did uh, also some pioneering work uh, tracking uh, ACL and uh, with uh, biplanar X-rays. Uh, but this is uh, an exciting uh, development that again allows uh, the assessment of loads uh, directly using these uh, instrumented uh, prostheses. to measure in vivo uh, effects of forces in tissues, but they require high, highly specialized techniques uh, that have uh, uh, various uh, problems. There's um, uh, obviously ethical issues, uh, either with uh, invasive techniques uh, uh, or uh, X-rays and uh, ionizing radiation, uh, although the dosage is quite low these days. There's obviously infection complications if you have invasive techniques. There's clearly disruption of normal movement. There's only restricted movements that you can perform under these conditions and restricted activities. Obviously, if someone is um, uh, having an instrumented knee prosthesis, they're unlikely to uh, be able to perform perhaps highly dynamic movement that might be interesting in sports biomechanics. And obviously, there are various calibration problems. So just a quick introduction. Um, and uh, of course, the alternative, and uh, given that we're talking about uh, inverse dynamics, the alternative to all those uh, direct uh, in vivo methods is, of course, uh, to use biomechanical uh, models. So whether we use um, a rigid body model uh, or uh, a more uh, complex model, um, modeling is an attempt to represent reality in a simplified way. So if I was interested in uh, what joint moments are, are exerted uh, in a person that uh, is performing a vertical jump, uh, then obviously I can use um, a simplified model or a more complex uh, musculoskeletal model. Uh, 
So I just want to spend a, a little bit of time on the basics of, of this process because um, I think that's that's where uh, most of the problems uh, start. And the classification that I will follow, obviously there are a, a lot of different ways to classify uh, biomechanical models, um, but the, um, the type of classification that I'm going to use here is basically divide models to either conceptual, statistical or regression models, or full mathematical, sometimes also called computer models. And if we look at sort of a graphical representation of those models, I'm not going to talk about at all about sort of hierarchical or conceptual models of technique or, or regression models that we uh, sort of uh, measure a lot of parameters and we're trying to sort of fit relationship to those. But I'm just to concentrate on uh, the types of models where we represent the human body with um, uh, a rigid segment uh, and using the equations of motion, we're trying to understand something about the forces that either cause the movement or loaded the various uh, tissues. Uh, I'm not going to go uh, into detail into um, highly um, complex three-dimensional musculoskeletal models. I'm just going to show you some uh, brief um, output of, of the work that we do. But for this lecture, I want to concentrate on simple models because I want to, as I said, explain some principles with very uh, basic examples that um, you can probably do by hand. Uh, in uh, in uh, Liverpool John Moores University, we have a big uh, uh, osteoarthritis project, the OActive projects, and uh, uh, in fact, we apply uh, quite complex techniques to, to understand uh, multi-scale um, effects of forces. So we might start with um, uh, um, joint angles and kinematics in, in the body. Uh, we then try and um, determine uh, internal joint loads and muscle forces. But we then also apply these uh, to finite element models uh, of uh, the menisci and the ligaments uh, and uh, uh, cartilage uh, in the knee to understand cartilage uh, stresses uh, in uh, uh, people that don't have osteoarthritis and those that developed osteoarthritis. Obviously, the complexity uh, is increased dramatically if, if you try and um, uh, understand uh, the, the stresses in, in various tissues, but obviously uh, the clinical relevance, uh, it's, it's also increasing because this type of information uh, is very important uh, for a clinician. And as I said, a lot of this, uh, although this is a clinical application and not a sport application, uh, similar techniques can be applied in sport. So we use a, a pipeline uh, using the OpenSIM uh, system uh, using uh, um, motion analysis of uh, uh, normal gait and people with osteoarthritis. Uh, and uh, using this pipeline, we can calculate knee joint uh, loading. But also if we, if we have MRI or CT scans from patients, then we can also combine uh, the kinematics with the finite element model uh, that, that was developed uh, from the uh, segmentation of the MRIs and that provides the stresses in, in the cartilage, in, in the tissues in the knee. But for uh, this talk, what, what I wanted to uh, separate is the concept of um, running inverse dynamics uh, techniques, uh, and that provides us with the joint moments 
and only the partial joint reaction forces. And obviously, in a complex system like this, when you have many muscles, the knee joint moment calculated will be um, originating by uh, the activation of a number of muscles and the forces produced by uh, a lot of different muscles. So um, through static optimization, uh, we calculate the individual muscle forces and then with some force system analysis, we calculate the total uh, joint reaction forces. Um, but what I wanted to stress here is that to arrive at the point where somebody can calculate the actual joint reaction forces, having calculated muscle forces, you need to go through inverse dynamics first. And that allows us to, as I said, calculate um, the cartilage and uh, just a quick example here um, uh, that shows that a healthy person, the stresses are distributed both uh, on the lateral and the medial side. But if you see with, uh, as you progress through LEOA uh, or developed uh, osteoarthritis, uh, then the stresses, especially in the medial side, tend to be concentrating uh, on a much smaller area. Again, an example of multiscale modeling and how you progress from inverse dynamics uh, to cartilage stresses uh, in specific tissues. But generally speaking, uh, the procedures, the general procedures in modeling uh, follow all these steps. And I'm using the example here from um, uh, Ben O'Neill's and Walter Herzog's uh, book, which I think is very clear uh, in, in these um, issues. And you can see that irrespective of the type of model that, that you need to use, whether, whether it's um, a, a regression model uh, or um, a rigid body model or even uh, um, a more complex three-dimensional muscular skeletal model, you have to go uh, through these general uh, steps. And one of the questions that, that, you want, that you might want to ask, uh, uh, for example, is what is the loading in the knee during uh, weight uh, training? And according to these general modeling procedures, you need to start thinking about what part of the body do I need to model? What I need to know about the way the forces are applied by muscles and tendons in this movement? And what kind of model would be appropriate, um, but as simple as possible? In other words, uh, can it a two-dimensional rigid model uh, of, of the lower leg will be sufficient or do I need to go to a full three-dimensional musculoskeletal model? Now, again, uh, I'm going back to uh, one of the uh, first, paper that apply, first papers that applied um, and explain the application of uh, inverse dynamics in biomechanics uh, using free-body diagrams. Um, and if you, if you look at these um, uh, papers, uh, the process, the general um, modeling processes applied to the analysis of forces using a free body diagram, uh, obviously you have to uh, look at the system of interest for the research question. We always have to start with a relevant research question and then see uh, what type of model would be appropriate. But once you decide that, you still need to do some assumptions and simplifications. Instead, a model is uh, an attempt to represent reality, so you have to accept that you're going to um, um, perform some uh, or, or accept some assumptions and, and, and make some simplifications to, to be able to do that. And 
Then you, you're ready to build the free body diagram, which is basically a depiction of the rigid body, uh, the reference frame, and all the external forces and moments uh, acting uh, on the body. And what kind of forces are we talking about? Generally speaking, and again, you can go back to the uh, original references, there are just two types of forces that you need to think about uh, in uh, applying in a free body diagram. Either in more forces, in other words, forces that are applied without any contact, and in, in biomechanics, we're basically talking about the weight, which we normally apply at the center of gravity, and contact forces. In other words, forces that are applied uh, on your segment, on, on your free body diagram of the segment, uh, through some sort of contact. And these contact forces uh, are described as two types. If you go back to the uh, paper by Andrews, for example, uh, it just clearly states all we need is contact forces at the proximal and distal joints, and these are because of the um, uh, contact with other segments uh, um, in, in the kinetic chain, or contact forces uh, on the free body diagram between the joints. So in, in the beginning, in the very beginning, there was no other uh, sort of um, terminology used. It was either remote or contact forces. And then, obviously, if you have those forces applied, uh, you uh, develop the equations of motion depending on uh, the complexity of the model, and then you just um, uh, solve the equations of motion uh, to calculate the various mechanical parameters uh, that you need. And this is an example uh, from the Andrews uh, paper for, uh, for three dimensions uh, and two dimensions as well. Uh, I just want to, again, uh, make the point that what we're talking about here is either contact forces uh, at the uh, proximal and distal joints and contact forces uh, in between, anywhere in between, in addition to uh, the remotely applied uh, weight uh, force vector. So when, when we're talking about uh, inverse, what does, what does inverse what does the term inverse uh, uh, means? What, what, is a, what exactly is uh, inverted uh, in inverse dynamics? Started up on a six when you pulled through the clouds and then I moved in above him. Well, if you were directly above him, how could you see him? Because I was inverted. I don't know whether you're a Top Gun fan uh, like myself, uh, but the, the new Top Gun movie is coming out uh, while it was coming out this July. Hopefully that uh, won't be delayed. But obviously what we're talking about uh, is, is not being uh, upside down. Uh, what we're talking about is using the equations of motion uh, for a, a simple two-dimensional uh, model here, but in the inverse sense. That is to say, we start with a movement, and if we calculate uh, the kinematics of the movement, then we can use the equations of motion to determine uh, the forces uh, or the total force that, that cause uh, that movement, and then obviously that can give us uh, the loading. Again, remember that the only forces that we're talking about are either contact forces at the joints uh, and contact forces uh, anywhere else on the free body diagram. And I can answer questions such as, what is the loading in the ligaments, for example, during this exercise? Uh, or what is uh, the loading in the different joints 
if I calculate uh, the total joint moment, if I or if I calculate uh, forces uh, in a certain direction. So if I uh, look at a very specific example that you can probably uh, do by hand, I just want to do a very simple knee extension uh, exercise. Um, uh, just imagine that a person is just holding their lower leg in a horizontal position. So they only have to overcome the weight uh, of the lower leg segment uh, and they're keeping the leg in this position. For this example, I'm just going to assume that the horizontal uh, axis uh, is aligned with the compressive uh, or the long axis of the segment and the vertical axis, the Y axis, uh, is, is aligned with the shear axis uh, of the segment. So there's the rigid body depiction. Um, I put my reference frame uh, system. I assume that these are the positive directions uh, in the compressive and shear or the X and Y, if you like. Uh, and then I apply the external forces and moments, as we said, there's the remote force of the weight and then uh, the joint contact forces. We don't have a, a distal joint here. We assume that this is the, the last uh, uh, the terminal segment in the kinetic chain. So I just apply uh, two forces, a compressive and a shear uh, component uh, in, in the proximal joint. And these are the joint reactions uh, because this segment obviously has contact uh, with the upper leg uh, at the knee joint here. Now, when, when I'm coming to... Uh, draw the contact forces on the free body diagram, we basically have two options and we, we can follow two different approaches. We can either draw those forces as they act, and this is what uh, Nig calls actual forces approach in the, the Nig and Herzog uh, book, which is very clear on this subject. Or you can use what's called the equivalent momentum force in other words, instead of applying the forces as they act, you just apply uh, a resultant moment and force uh, at, at a suitable position. And normally this is, uh, is the um, origin uh, or the, the, the joint uh, uh, point uh, through which the axis of rotation is supposed to, to act. So again, the, the only terms that we use <clears throat> is contact forces. And for this category of forces in the free body diagram, I need to make uh, this choice. If I want to apply the forces as they act, then obviously I need to have that information. And we can either uh, get this information from the literature. So for example, if I want to know how is the patella tendon acting uh, on, in, in this example, then I can look in the literature. We have done a lot of work uh, on this subject. So you can see here that uh, we can measure the uh, uh, knee joint uh, kinematics using uh, X-rays. And in this uh, picture, you can see that I can almost um, uh, faintly make the outline of the patella tendon. So I can see how the tendon, uh, the patella tendon is attached. So how the quadriceps force will be applied uh, in relation, for example, uh, to the TBL plateau. So here's the um, x-ray. I hope that will show uh, play on the video. So
Okay, the video is clearly uh, um, uh, doesn't uh, play, but I'll um, uh, basically uh, explain here that um, with the X-ray, we can actually uh, determine the orientation of the patella tendon relative to the tibial plateau, which, which happens to be our shear axis uh, in the joint. Uh, because obviously that will be important information uh, if we wanted to model this. So uh, th this is from uh, from the work of uh, Dimitri Tsaopoulos, his PhD. So uh, if I want to uh, go in passive conditions um, uh, or in uh, contraction conditions, uh, obviously if I'm just holding my weight, I will be uh, somewhere in between here. But I can see that uh, near full extension, uh, that angle will be just uh, over 120 degrees. So I can get this type of information uh, to uh, model the way the muscle force uh, is acting here. If I didn't have this information, I can also uh, assume that there will be a joint moment uh, exerted by the muscle force, although uh, I don't uh, have information to model the force uh, as it acts. I can just replace it with a moment uh, and some force that will simply change the overall um, compressive and sear components uh, of the contact forces uh, at the joint. And then if I apply the equations of motion, uh, then I can solve them uh, to calculate uh, those uh, contact forces and either the moment uh, or the force that is applied here. So here's the equations of motion for this uh, simple example. Um, obviously, uh, we can only have one unknown muscle moment uh, and one unknown force for each equation. Otherwise, we won't be able to solve these equations. Uh, I'll talk about this uh, a little bit later. The system will be indeterminate. But if there's only one unknown force acting, uh, all the others are known, uh, then I can sequentially first calculate the overall joint moment and then again sequentially uh, go to the uh, compressive direction uh, and apply the equations of motion to calculate the overall uh, reaction force in the compressive direction and do the same uh, for the shear direction. The point that I want to make here is that whether I'm using a very simple two-dimensional uh, free body diagram uh, that I can do the calculations by hand or whether I'm using um, a very complex three-dimensional musculoskeletal model, these processes of uh, determining uh, the free body diagram and all the forces acting and all the muscles, this is musculoskeletal modeling uh, aspects um, that we have to go through irrespective of the complexity uh, of the model. And if I see those two examples, uh, we can see here uh, what uh, is called the resultant moments approach or the actual uh, forces approach. And you can see that the um, equations of motion are almost identical. And the only thing that will be changing, obviously, is that the number of forces that you will have in a resultant moments approach will be different to the number of forces that you will have uh, where you apply the actual forces. So the only difference is... Uh, is the to uh, different. So normally um, the maximum number of forces uh, in uh, the compressive direction would be less than the maximum number of forces in the compressive direction uh, in this uh, um, approach. 
So here's the detailed um, expanded form of these general equations. And as you can see, you can probably solve these by hand, but it's an important point here to make and is that both approaches are mechanically equivalent. So I, I can examine this simple knee uh, extension uh, example uh, using either this um, set of equation or this set of equation um, and the mechanical behavior will be equivalent. That is to say, the mechanical system motion will be exactly the same whether I apply this set of equations or this set of equations. And the other point to make is that the inverse dynamics output is always the unknown forces that are applied uh, or the unknown moment and the two reaction forces. Uh, the components of the, of the reaction force in the X and Y direction, although they're normally initially drawn generically to point towards the positive direction, obviously the calculations uh, will, will give us the actual uh, reaction forces in the way they act. That is to say, if the RY calculated is negative, it means that it's actually acting uh, in the negative direction. And here are the, these calculations, and again, uh, I'd sort of kept that simple so that uh, we can do these calculations by hand. And as you can see, if I follow the actual forces approach, uh, I will come up with the answer that the muscle force applied, um, if I know, obviously, the moment arm, uh, then the muscle force is uh, 243 newtons, and you can see that the uh, 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 compressive force uh, is 225 newtons in this example, uh, as shown here, whereas the uh, shear force, the component of the reaction force uh, or the joint contact force uh, uh, is minus, which means that uh, in this example, the force will be acting uh, uh, along the negative direction. Whereas with the resultant moments approach, again, uh, I calculate the overall joint moment in this case, and the Rx and Ry, in this case, they have different values. Um, I calculate no compressive force uh, and the shear force uh, or the component uh, along the y-axis or the shear direction uh, is positive in this case, meaning that it's acting uh, in, in the positive uh, direction. So you can see that there's already some differences depending on the complexity of the model and the approach that we take in modeling uh, the way the forces, uh, the, the uh, one category of contact forces, the contact forces in between the joints are applied. But the important thing here is that this information, say if I look at the actual forces example, uh, so I've drawn here roughly to scale uh, the compressive and the shear uh, force. Um, and what we can see is that this information if I think of the model uh, of the free body diagram, it tells me that uh, there is a force applied in this direction. And, and obviously, um, an external, the other segment uh, that is attached to this segment, the ligament that can provide a force in this direction, mainly, uh, obviously, there's other tissues, but it's mainly the anterior cruciate ligament. So with this information, uh, I can start getting some um, assessment, if you like, or some idea of what are the ligaments that are likely to be uh, loaded in the joint uh, if I was following uh, this uh, simple uh, example. 
Obviously, this will give me a completely different answer because this will probably indicate that it's actually the posterior cruciate ligament that is uh, loaded. So you can see that I can get a, a different answer depending on how I model uh, the forces and which inverse dynamics approach I'm following here. There's an excellent paper uh, um, uh, recently that presents a sort of a similar, uh, more generic example that, that, that makes uh, these points. Um, but I, I think the inverse dynamics uh, nomenclature that is um, recommended, in my view, uh, uh, sort of reproduces uh, some uh, concepts that have been introduced uh, over the years. And uh, Andrew has done a very good job in sort of summarizing uh, the different nom uh, terminology and nomenclature that uh, is applied to uh, classifying uh, the uh, different uh, uh, the different aspects, if you like, of uh, joint forces. But as you can see here, uh, the situation if you look at the literature, is quite complex. Whereas if you go back to uh, the way the free body diagram was originally described, you only had two types of forces, remote and contact forces, and just two categories of contact forces. Whereas here we start uh, seeing that over the years, uh, we have things such as um, resultant joint force, uh, bone on bone uh, forces, uh, or uh, net joint forces, and in my view, that um, attempt to uh, sort of make things uh, perhaps uh, more complex uh, goes in the other direction, whereas I think we should be uh, keeping things uh, simple and trying to uh, simplify uh, the way we apply uh, inverse dynamics. Uh, there's another very good recent paper uh, by uh, uh, team and uh, uh, collaborators. In fact, uh, uh, we wanted to discuss these issues with Alberto uh, in the ISBS uh, conference. Um, but again, you can see here that there are concepts about intersegmental forces, net forces, resultant forces, uh, and so forth. So my view is that we started in the 1960s with some sort of seminal uh, papers uh, by Andrews or uh, Paul, for example, in his um, uh, paper in 1966 about uh, hip joint loading. And the only uh, term was joint contact forces. And here we are in 2020, and uh, we have this classification of sort of um, uh, put this uh, information uh, from uh, Andrew's paper, but I've added uh, their own um, suggestions and also the ISP recommendations. And you can see, for example, um, that some, some of these uh, sort of appear on both sides of the table, if you like. So somebody might be calling this joint reaction force and somebody might be calling this uh, joint reaction force. So although there was a... Um, a great development uh, of technology in biomechanics over these years, I think uh, the terminology uh, uh, actually is a retrograde step. And uh, uh, perhaps, uh, if you like me, 
you probably think that it's uh, probably um, um, a situation with the Tower of uh, Babel than uh, making things uh, more clear. So I think my view is that we need to simplify this. This is not uh, helping. Uh, this classification is not uh, helping uh, the work that we do. And uh, I just wanted to sort of follow some arguments. So let's say that I was applying um, the actual force and then uh, I also uh, was able to estimate how much the antagonist force was. So I was using a model applying uh, the antagonist force uh, in this example. Uh, it is possible to do this. We've done it before. Uh, another of other groups have done it before. If you use an EMG force model uh, during knee flexion, then you should be able to apply the uh, uh, flexor antagonist force uh, during knee extension. So the question here is, is this calculation, uh, the, this, uh, the joint reaction force will be uh, um, obviously different uh, because it will probably reduce the shear load and increase the compressive load. But is this another category or, or another flavor of uh, the joint reaction force? Um, in my view, uh, that's not the case. The joint reaction forces are only uh, one set, um, and in the same way as we have ground reaction forces in the terminal segment, we should only be talking about these contact forces at the joint uh, and calling them joint reaction forces. And their magnitude and direction uh, would depend on the complexity of the model. It's not a, a sort of a dual system. Depending on the complexity and the approach that we use, uh, the overall joint reaction force will have a different magnitude and direction. And obviously the components in the two different uh, axes will be different, but it's, it's one and the same uh, joint reaction force uh, in the context of uh, the free body diagram. So my view is that all these terms, net joint forces or resultant joint forces or intersegmental joint forces are inappropriate for differentiating joint reaction forces if we use uh, um, an actual forces approach or a resultant moment approach because a net or resultant simply means that it's the vector sum of, of something. And if you look at this diagram, what, what we're actually doing um, is that if I calculate the net of all the forces applied on this free body diagram, the net or resultant is, is actually applied on the next segment. So all the forces applied on the lower leg have a net force that is actually applied on the upper segment. But what happens to this upper leg segment is of no interest to me when I'm analyzing the lower leg. And what I'm interested in is the reaction uh, of the net force that is applied on this segment by the, um, the other segment. So what I'm calculating is actually the reaction to the net force uh, of all the forces applied uh, in the lower leg. So uh, irrespective of the approach, the joint reaction forces will be net and resultant. So I can't use those two to differentiate. And obviously, intersegmental means that it's acting between or across segments. And as I explained, um, the uh, reaction force uh, is obviously applied because uh, of the um, application of the net force to the other uh, segment. So 
The reason that we can't, uh, in my view, um, differentiate with these terms is that, as I said, uh, the components uh, of the reaction force are netto resultant and intersegmental irrespective of the approach used. That is to say, Rx and Ry, either in this approach or that approach, can be described as net resultant and intersegmental. So I shouldn't be using these terms to differentiate those two. There's also another example of supposedly the existence of the bone-on-bone -bone force that is different to the joint reaction force. And in various books, not only in winter, I mean, this is a great book, but um, this uh, sort of concept has been uh, reproduced in another of biomechanics books uh, to supposedly support the existence of a bone-on-bone bone bone force that is different to the joint reaction force. However, in my view, this is not a rational argument uh, and, in fact, is a flawed foundational premise to support the existence of a different category of force that is called bone-on-bone -bone force. And the reason is that is what is actually being described as a joint reaction force that's different to this bone-on-bone -bone, bone -bone force is in fact a joint reaction force that was incorrectly calculated because if you say that there's a difference between a relaxed segment or when somebody is contracting their muscles, then what you're saying is that I know that there's some forces acting, but I'm not going to bother uh, including them in the free body diagram. Well, obviously, if you know that there's forces acting and you don't include them, then the joint reaction force that you will calculate uh, will be wrong. But that's not a reason to say that there's a bone-on-bone -bone force that is different to the joint reaction force. What is actually described as a bone-on-bone -bone force is the correct joint reaction force that you will calculate if you included those forces. Now, obviously, that technically might be challenging, but as I said, even if you calculated the um, force um, of one of them or estimated, then the inverse dynamics will predict the other one and will calculate the correct uh, joint reaction force. So, in conclusion, in inverse dynamics, free body diagrams include the actual forces either as applied or as equivalent resultant force and moments, and these lead to the, those two different approaches. But irrespective of the approach used, the inverse dynamics output always include the joint reaction forces representing the interactions with um, the adjacent segments. Although the resultant moments approach is very convenient because you can use it uh, to uh, model a multi-segment system, so do uh, multi-body inverse dynamics because you don't have to worry about uh, modeling the forces in, in different joints. Um, they um, avoids indeterminate systems because you always have only one unknown uh, in each segment. But the joint reaction force calculated is only the partial joint contact force because it does not contain the contribution from muscles and other internal joints. <clears throat> As I said, um, it, it's very convenient in, um, in inverse dynamics these days. Um, after all, if you're interested in the um, loading in the hip joint, there's no point calculating in detail how the muscles are acting around the ankle. You can easily use 
um, resultant moments of protein in the foot uh, and move up the kinetic chain and then just do a more detailed analysis uh, when you arrive at the hip joint. If you're interested in uh, the total joint reaction force, in other words, the total joint load, you have to make the effort to uh, apply the forces, uh, the muscle forces in particular, as they act. And as I explained, all the other terms that are suggested are inappropriate in my view, because whether the joint reaction force is calculated from the actual forces or the uh, resultant moments uh, can be described by all those terms. So I just want to dispel uh, some myths and misconceptions in my view. There are no different flavors of joint forces. Uh, there's only a single joint contact force calculated from the inverse dynamics, but obviously its magnitude and direction will depend on the complexity of the musculoskeletal model and the inverse dynamics approach that was implemented. And musculoskeletal modeling is always required in inverse dynamics, irrespective of the approach that you use and the complexity of the model that, that you implement. And the last point that I want to make uh, is that there's normally an accusation uh, that all these misconceptions uh, and inappropriate terminology uh, are linked to uh, sport or sports science or sports biomechanics only. But I just want to make it clear that in my view, these uh, terminology issues and misconception crept through other areas and not, um, uh, they're not exclusive or certainly not originated uh, in sports biomechanics. So, I'll, I'll leave you with some uh, guidelines and recommendations, in my view, again, for using accurate uh, terminology for inverse dynamics. Um, you should always report the inverse dynamics approach used, and whether you use an actual forces approach or a resultant moments approach. The joint reaction forces, uh, if you used a resultant moments approach, are only partial joint reaction or contact forces. You should not be using those uh, to um, uh, determine joint loading. And as I said, all these uh, terms, uh, in my view, are inappropriate uh, because uh, they can, uh, they're inappropriate to distinguish joint reaction forces uh, because they relate to the calculated joint reaction forces irrespective of the inverse dynamics approach used to calculate them. And if you want to calculate uh, accurately the joint loading, then you need to somehow uh, determine the muscle forces and the way they act. So, joint reaction forces from uh, resultant moments should not be used for joint loading uh, estimation. And again, if I go back to the way, uh, an example from the OACTIVE project, uh, again, although we calculate the partial joint reaction forces here through static optimization in this case, because it's a very complex uh, model, we're able to calculate the muscle forces and then through a force system analysis, which is very basically uh, the actual uh, way of applying the forces, we're able to calculate the total joint reaction force and, and then apply this force uh, to the finite uh, element models. So, uh, if it was uh, up to me, my suggestion for inverse dynamics is instead of having a complex table is simply to state the inverse dynamics approach that you use 
and just refer to these uh, joint reaction forces if you use the resultant moments approach uh, as partial uh, joint reaction forces, whereas if you made the effort uh, either through uh, uh, simplification and just including one muscle force or through uh, optimization and calculating uh, the muscle, uh, all the muscle forces acting is to refer this to total joint reaction force. Thank you very much uh, for uh, tuning in. Okay, thanks, Bill. That was brilliant. Um, yeah, firstly, I love the Top Gun reference. Um, but yeah, I think I'm massively in favour of anything that simplifies either terminology or application. And I love that you brought it all together at the end of a series of really clear and concise recommendations. So it's basically just saying we have to state whether we're using an actual forces approach or a resultant moments approach. And we have to state whether we're using total or partial joint reaction forces. And I think when you can sum it up in a really simple and clear message, but actually have all of the kind of theory and justification behind it to support those recommendations, then, yeah, I thought that was brilliant. So thank you. Thank you very much. Um, but, yeah, I think the only kind of real question from me as a follow-up to that was could you give any examples of potential problems that can occur as a result of people using the wrong terminology? There, there, are, there are several um, uh, examples. And uh, again, uh, if, if you look at Andrew's paper, uh, the Gottsketal uh, paper, they, they cite uh, various examples where people uh, basically, in essence, they use a result and moments approach. Um, and, and this is this is the typical approach that you would use in a in a multi-segment inverse dynamics, especially with a, um, a musculoskeletal modeling um, uh, software. Uh, and initially, you have to calculate the um, the joint moments, and the joint reaction forces that you calculate from uh, from this part uh, of the um, uh, inverse dynamics process, as I explained, are only the partial. Uh, joint contact forces or the partial joint reaction forces, and you you can't you can't use uh, that system that that calculation to start making inferences about what would be the load in the different uh, tissues such as the cartilage for example or the cruciate ligaments and so forth. And um, uh, I think I think there's numerous examples that um, uh, of of papers uh, as, as listed in. In Andrews, as I said, um, of um, applications where uh, people are using a, a partially calculated joint reaction force to make inferences about the joint loading. And that, and that is the point that we shouldn't be doing this. And obviously, if the interest is only on the joint moment, uh, then you, you can stop at that stage and because the joint moment will be accurately um, and say, you know, the joint moment was such and such, and uh, that's how the joint moments are distributed um, in the uh, in in the joints of the lower limbs, for example. But if you wanted to go any deeper and, and uh, uh, calculate uh, loading in in uh, uh, the ligaments uh, or the cartilage, then you need to make sure that the joint reaction force, which again um, is the only output in terms of forces 
uh, in the joint from the um, inverse dynamics approach, that, that is the force that will be uh, related to the actual loading in the various tissues around the joint. So that, that, that is the point. Thanks. I think, yeah, again, another set of kind of really elegantly expressed but clear and concise recommendations. I think, again, it comes back to that general point we always go back to of your methods stemming from your actual research question and what are you actually trying to work out? Is it the joint moment or is it loading in cartilage or ligament? And then your methods have to apply to that. Yeah, and uh, one one of the things that, for example, uh, uh, that is clear is that if we look at the terminal segment, uh, we all all understand that, uh, you know, you have the action to the ground and then you have the reaction from the ground to the segment. And we're happy to to sort of just call this the the, uh, the ground reaction force. And, you know, there was no you know, reason to, uh, you know, change this and, you know, call it uh, net, net ground uh, force or uh, uh, resultant ground force. You know, we all, have, we all understand that it's, it's the reaction to the force that we apply to the ground. And it, it should be the same on, on the other side, you know, with the proximal joint. Uh, we're looking at that segment at that point in time, and it's the reaction from the other segment that is applied on the segment we're analysing and therefore... Uh, it's a uh, reaction force at the joint, and therefore it's a joint reaction force. I think we should just stick with the joint reaction force, and whether it's the partial or the total, depending on the complexity of the musculoskeletal model, and, and avoid any other uh, misleading uh, uh, terms, in, in, in my view, that uh, uh, sort of are not, not helpful in, in trying to sort of discuss issues about loading in the musculoskeletal system. Yeah, perfect. I think clearer, more concise and more simplistic is always beneficial for everyone. Um, Yeah, I think so. We've got a comment on YouTube that I think sums up, sums that up perfectly. So um, if I pronounce this right, Athanasios Bissas says, thanks, Bill. That was great. In particular, the clear recommendations we need as a scientific community to clarify these issues and move forward using the same conventions. I think that sums up perfectly both what you've said and what I feel sat here listening And, and I think sometimes it's also important uh, to be going to some of these, you know, older but seminal papers because I, th- I think they're crystal clear, uh, uh, cri- cri- cli- crystal clear, I'm sorry, my... Uh, uh, my <laughs> a bit croaky. Um, and uh, they... they um, the terminology is unambiguous uh, and very, very clear. Yeah, agreed. And if anyone is interested in any of the papers mentioned, especially the more seminal articles, there are links below the video on YouTube to most of the papers mentioned in the talk. And then the others, there's a full reference there as well. So that will hopefully encourage some more kind of wider follow-up reading as well. Um, but yeah, just on that, I think all that remains really is just for me a huge thank you to Bill because I've said that was really, really excellent and useful for a lot of people. And just to people watching, um, don't forget that all of the previous lectures are available to view on the same channel and keep an eye out for lectures in the coming weeks on tennis biomechanics and a bit more practical-based 
guide or session from Vicon on various things relating to motion capture. So yeah, thanks again, Bill. Thank you very much and thank you all for watching.